0: episode of The Deerhorn. I'm your host, Jay Ryan, and this is a Seattle Lombard podcast for the committed and curious. First off, I figured I should maybe give you guys a little bit of a background about who I am. So I grew up on the east coast of Canada on an island called Newfoundland. Um, I got into synths about 10 years ago. I'm currently living in Edmonton, which is northern-ish Canada. Yeah, I got into synths about 10 years ago, Um, I made some synth pop and then the natural progression from there as a big synth freak was to get into modular. So I started with some Eurorack and started seeing these weird wooden instruments with banana jacks and I was super curious. Uh, Eventually I bit the bullet and jumped in. I started out in Seattle Lombard with a Coco Kiwanis. And I currently have a Plum Butter 2 and a Sidrax. The Stuber, the new Stuber, is on my list of things to acquire. So, a few years back, I listened to Tim Held's Podular Modcast, the first episode. That was the first podcast I ever listened to, and I fell in love right away. And that led me to the Source of Uncertainty podcast, Esoteric Modulation, and more recently John O'Well's Dot Wave. And what I loved about all these podcasts is that they really give back to the community, they really help educate us all, and it's just so inspiring to me. I always wanted to start my own, just so that I could kind of give back as well, but I wasn't quite sure what to do. So what happened was, when I got my first Seattle Lombard instrument, the Coco Quanis, as I mentioned, I started posting some clips on my social media and uh, I constantly got messages from people saying, I have no idea what's going on. This makes no sense to me. And I get it. Like, there's no labels. There's not even really any manuals. So it's hard if you're not sure to want to jump into this stuff. After I got those messages, I'm like, well, that would be a great podcast idea. Let's get artists that use Seattle Lombard instruments on here, talk about what makes them special, why they love it, and how they use them. And I really wanted to focus on that. Um, I should also, also say thank you to those other podcasts for existing and providing inspiration because without them, I would never be able to do this. And if you're listening to this and you haven't listened to those i highly recommend you take the time to go and check it out so yeah this is what this podcast is for if if you're curious and you're not sure about Seattle, lombard we're just gonna have some artists on and talk about it and from there hopefully that gives you the courage to jump in but also not just people that are curious and have never experienced Seattle Lombard. It's also for people who are experienced but maybe want some new ideas and new inspiration or even just to find some new music from artists that use it. There is a little bit of lingo associated with Seattle Lombard that I should clear up in case you are one of those people that aren't quite familiar. So the Coca Quanis is commonly referred to as the cocoa and that is I would I would say probably the most popular piece that of Ciat Lombard that's out there the other thing is the plum butter or plum butter too is often referred to as PB and Ciat Lombard itself is sometimes just referred to as CL and I honestly don't even know if I'm pronouncing Seattle Lombard correctly so that might be part of the reason why. The other thing is Peter Blasser's name will come up a lot. He is the creator of Seattle Lombard Instruments and the company. He's the designer, the Madman, and many other things. And I should mention Seattle Lombard's not the only instruments that he designs. Um, there's also Shibobo shin to Darrow, there's Tocante, there's a ton of stuff that kind of falls under the Peter Blasser camp and any of those are fair game to be topics on this podcast as far as format goes, uh, basically just want to have a different artist on every episode to talk about their process what intrigued them, how they got into Seattle Lombard, why they love it, what they'd love to see next, things like that so it'll just be a little intro chat for me like this each episode. Then we'll listen to a quick snippet of one of the artists tracks. We'll get right into the conversation and then end with a full track from the artist. And I did that on purpose because I wanted their music to be the last thing you're left with after the conversation. I also wanted to say thank you to Devin Beggs for designing the logo. Um, We had very little conversation about what it should be, but I think we are on the same page because he whipped it up pretty quick and it was even better than I could have hoped for. So I just want to say thanks to Devin for that. It's really appreciated, man. And also I wanted to say thank you to Joe Millar for providing the theme song. Um, It's called Seven Years to Sunset. And you can find that on the Fern Lodge SoundCloud page. Speaking of Joe Millar and Fern Lodge, he is the very first guest on this podcast, and that is who we're going to be talking with today. Um, I was a fan of Joe's music before I ever got to know Joe, but he's out in eastern Canada, and we kind of stopped, kept seeing each other on buy and sell groups, and after a few trades and and sales between us we got to talking found our love for gear and he's become slowly one of my best friends even though we've never met in person Uh, we FaceTime once a week we talk all the time Joe was an early adopter of the Seattle Lombard Instruments getting his first one uh, way back in 2012 he talks about how Coco was all over all three of his albums As I mentioned before, the intro track is his song. In this chat, we get into his process with the plum butter, the cocoa, and the shampoo. And uh, it was very important to me that Joe be the first guest because he's the reason that I got into Seattle Lombard. He's the one that tipped me over the edge and convinced me to get a Cocoa Qantas. And I mean, I obviously fell in love with Seattle Lombard if I'm starting a podcast about it. So, again, I want to say thank you very much to Joe. Um, You mean a lot to me, man. So, let's take a quick listen to his track, The Infinite Moment, and jump right into our conversation. I hope you guys enjoy. To do this with you.
1: Well, I'm excited that you're doing this with me as well. <laughs> How can we
0: literally make this more awkward? I don't know. I got a question <laughs> for you. How about that? Sure. How many members are in the group Fern Lodge? Officially or unofficially? Um, not based on whatever Muff Wiggler says.
1: Uh, Fern Lodge is one single member, which is myself. Uh, the funny part is the confusion is my, uh, my handle picture, um, which I started using on my SoundCloud many, many years ago. And there's a picture of three people in it, um, which is actually my dad, my brother and my brother's friend, uh, from about 1974 or 75. So it's funny because I've had... um, I hate to use the word fans or people who listen to my work or whatever because we're doing experimental, so fan might mean two people. Um, But I've had quite a few people over the years refer to uh, the band or the other members and question me about who the other members are. And I'm a bit of a... (laughs) a bit of a jokester so sometimes i'll play on that but um yeah there's just one person
0: and you should (laughs) exactly awesome um well let's let's start to talk a little bit about you um where are you located how did you get into music just a little bit of background we don't have to go too crazy sure um Right now, I'm in
1: PEI, beautiful PEI. It's a small little island province in uh, Canada, the east coast of Canada. Uh, To all the worldly listeners to the podcast, um, it's gorgeous. Its claim to fame is Anna Green Gables. Um, And beautiful white sandy beaches. And yeah, it's small. There's about 144,000 people, uh, permanent residents on the island. Um, which is fantastic but as far as you know a synth scene or experimental scene it's hard to get people together but uh, we do have a thriving little scene which is fantastic Um, as far as getting into music but this would be a longer sort of explanation is is I never really got into it from a music side because I've never really considered myself a musician um, I came at it from a sound art side. I, I studied sculpture at uh, Alberta College of Art and Design in Calgary, and I had my BFA in sculpture. And my main direction was sound art, um, and that was about my last couple of years in school, so that was early 90s, early mid-90s. Um, and yeah that's that's how i sort of started the whole process
0: well i have to say every time you post pictures whether or not you have a good scene scene i still get jealous of of where you are it's beautiful yeah pi
1: is absolutely gorgeous um literally every corner you turn there's you know it's absolutely gorgeous but before we moved here we actually lived in another part of canada called newfoundland uh, which you may be familiar uh, with. I might be. Um, and the thing about here is, is it, it's very—the only word I can use for it is gentrified—in the sense that, and that's that's an, a horrible term to use, but it's it's just there. There's not much left of wilderness here. Like it's gorgeous, uh, but it's it's well trampled. Um, Newfoundland was just the opposite where you would literally be in places where probably somebody somebody hadn't been there for you know 50, 60, 100 years
0: if not ever
1: if not ever And that solitude is incredible just listening to everything around you. Uh, my first EP that that, uh, that I released, was very much based on like the, the cover is actually a picture of a place called uh, Cape Spear. And, uh, it's me standing down by the ocean looking up towards Cape Spear and my parents are actually sitting in the, in a very, very far distance. And, uh, that was the first, it was just so inspirational living there and, and doing that stuff.
0: Yeah. That's um, so cool.
1: The, uh, yeah, it, it, you know, I, I find Canada, like people have said to me before, you know, you, you could spend a lifetime traveling Canada and, and never leaving and you would see so many different things.
0: We And you could, like that's the thing. We travel, mostly when we travel, we want to go on the West Coast and, you know, into the States. But it's like there's so much here in Canada that we've never seen.
1: Yeah, there's 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 astonishing places in every single province. You know the um, the only province that I've never actually been to is, uh, besides the territories, is um, is Manitoba. Um, but even something like Saskatchewan, where people are, you know, they're very dismissive and say, "Oh, it's flat prairies," but it is gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. I agree. But we get sidetracked.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it happens. <laughs> um,
1: one of the things I should mention, um, which which is is kind of funny like it, it was sort of the catalyst for music for me um when i was going to art school there was a little record shop that i used to go to um and um, it was when i first found and have cds by it was a record label called instinct records and, instinct? Uh, instinct records and basically uh, some of the artists that aren't were on Instinct Records, or Instinct Records, um, made 12K records, which is somebody like Taylor Dupree. Um, and it sort of introduced me to a lot of ambient music at the time. I had listened to sort of proto-ambient in the you know late 80s, early 90s, but this was when I really sort of heard a sound that, I, that really attracted me. Right. Um, but it was funny, at the time I would be listening to this stuff, going to art school, studying sound art, and the the sort of two never married until I went to a buddy's place, uh, a friend of mine called Matt Odrobny, he's uh, uh, from Edmonton and uh, we sort of met at art school and and we got along, we sort of hung out, I was smoking at the time, we'd hang out, we'd be smoking in the the bad part of the school where you'd smoke.
0: In the boys' room?
1: Yeah, (laughs) literally, smoking in the boys' room and uh, we started talking about electronic music and I was telling him about all this stuff and he said, oh, you gotta come over to my studio. Never thought much of it, I just thought art studio. And I went over there to his place and he had uh, tons of gear. And it was the first time I actually played a synthesizer and I realized at that moment, wow, I could actually make this stuff that I've been listening to.
0: And what are you talking about as far as like, what was in the studio that you kind of gravitated towards?
1: Ah, man, he had he had quite a lot of gear at the time, but I remember—I um, I think it was a Juno 106, actually—that he had, and that sort of drew me because it had you know sliders and so forth and so on. And, and I was—I just—I was playing on it and, and making stupid sounds. You know, don't get me wrong; I didn't know what I was. I don't it's know hard I was doing. to
0: make that thing sound bad, though.
1: <laughs> True, but somehow I was kind of managing to make it because <laughs> <laughs> I, I really didn't know what I was doing. And, uh, and it was funny that the day after I woke up and I thought to myself, man, how do I get a synthesizer? And I started trying to figure it out and I started hitting pawn shops and stuff like that. And, and at the time, the early 90s, people like, literally were giving this stuff away, um, which was fantastic. And that's where it kind of started.
0: Yeah, it's not like that anymore.
1: No, no. Some of the stories are insane like, you know, 808s for $200. Uh, Canadian, which is uh, what five dollars American, <laughs>
0: uh, <laughs> maybe a little less.
1: Um, you know, and and that's no joke. You know, my first my first Jupiter six, I think, was like less than five hundred dollars. My first Juno one hundred six, that I finally found, was I think one hundred and fifty bucks or or two hundred dollars somewhere around there.
0: So, just um, right now for the listener, you'll notice he's saying uh, his first. Yes. There's many, is what that means, I assume.
1: Yes. Yes. First of many. Uh, the, the joke actually, it's kind of funny because, you know, leading from point A to point Z, getting into Fiat uh, Lombard stuff is, is, I'm, I'm slightly renowned for buying and selling the same thing over and over and over and over, and over again. <laughs> um, yeah, it's kind of sad.
0: I think but. that's addictive because since I've known you, that's kind of what I've done too. Um,
1: you can't help it like, like I think a lot of people get inspira- like as an artist I get inspiration from you know certain elements of my art and, and one of them is, is, is gear you know what I mean uh, and you get a piece of gear and you're inspired and then all of a sudden you want another piece of gear and you want to be inspired by that so you have to sell something to buy something and it's sort of a, a repeated cycle um, what I found really funny over the years is you know is when you see the certain pieces of gear that you come back to no matter what and uh, some of those, for example, is CL, like CL stuff, will bring me back no matter what. It's, it's like the first hit of heroin, you know what I mean? I, I just, you can't get away from it. Um, right now, uh, incidentally, I, I, I don't have any CL in my studio, but that may or may not change within another couple of weeks.
0: Well, I think too, I mean, I know you don't have any right now, but if anyone wants to hear what you've done with it, I think you've said before there's pretty much none of your albums that don't have at least coca Guanus on it?
1: Yes. Pretty much every single one of my albums, every single one of my tracks has some kind of CL gear on them. On SoundCloud, every single one has CL
0: on it. There's not one without And you do beautiful stuff with it.
1: Well, thank you very much. I, I... It's, it's kind of funny that, uh, uh, because CL sometimes, or for the longest time, wasn't known for making beautiful sounds. Um, and uh, knowing that this interview was coming up, I, I, it was funny. I thought to myself, geez, when, when did I actually start, you know what I mean, with CL? And I finally found um, a post on Muff Wiggler. If, if your listeners don't know, Muff Wiggler is a forum that, that our synthesists go to. Uh, for years now, and uh, my first post, it's called my first C.L. Lombard adventure, that's what I literally called my, that post.
0: Your first and post on Muff Wiggler? It's
1: not my first post on Muff Wiggler, my first push, post on Muff Wiggler was like, uh, I think 2011, I was one of the first uh, to join way back in the day, uh, but my first post about C.L. is uh, 2013. Uh, February 7th, 2013. Um, and I think I got it actually 2012 was when I actually got but this is when I sort of posted my first track. And it was a cocolasa at the time. And um, some of the responses to it was, wow, this, this sounds like dream music. And, and I guess knowing me and knowing my sort of the things that you know, I've held dear over the time. This is one of the the big influences is uh, Boards of Canada. And it's funny, one of the last posts says, your stuff reminds me of Boards of Canada, but doesn't sound like it's trying to be, Um, which, which I found incredibly complimentary.
0: Yeah, that's such a huge compliment. Yeah. Like it's impossible to not be inspired by them and you know, to have the detail and stuff in your work, but to sound like you ultimately, is amazing. Well,
1: well, I think that, you know what I mean, them and, and Reflex rec- rec- or Ref- reflex Records, uh, like uh, Richard James, and, you know, people like Otek are on, on Warp, and, you know, the list goes on, is that sort of neo-nostalgia, right? This sort of uh, past, inside the present, this thing that never existed, right? Um, I, I, I think that, you know, I was an earlier adopter of that sort of sound, And I just loved
0: it. I just loved that broken sound, that broken down sound. Me too. Yeah. And the thing is with it, like, I don't know what it is, like the neo nostalgia thing you brought up or whatever, but I never like sit down to make music with the intent of it, like taking me somewhere specific. But what happens is I get lost in the the sound and then all of a sudden I end up in some memory whether it happened or not and that's what I love it's just it's like a weird form of time travel or something
1: yeah exactly like you know you'll catch a loop right or or something like especially in the Coco because it is so you know there's something about it it just adds an element and uh, you get caught in this loop and you're just listening to this loop and listening and listening and all of a sudden you look at your you know watch and an hour has went by and you've literally been listening to the same seven
0: second loop it's funny you mentioned that too, because I've heard a few people I've talked to lately say like that was a huge part of what happened when they got into the CL stuff, is that they found themselves listening intently again.
1: Yeah, yeah, 100%. Because I, I think that a lot to do with that is the way that, that Peter sort of approached, it, approached his instruments. When when I first looked at them, I said, you know, and, and excuse my language, is, what the fuck is this?
0: I'm like, sure you're a, not alone.
1: You know a it's it's ugly compared to at the time you gotta remember you know this was you know what was going on in in 2012 right is you know the flashy big synths
0: and all that kind of stuff right so yeah because that would have been even like prior to oh well, it would have been around the same time i guess that like moog and dsi started doing like more marketable analog synths again right
1: yeah exactly you know what i mean like even you know even stuff like modular at the time was like they were starting to get there were some big game players at the time that were sort of gaining momentum you know what I mean but you didn't have that plethora of, of, of choice you know what I mean right and like I saw these things and, and here's going to be an English word that I can't say because actually English is second language but hieroglyphic, hieroglyphics that's it hieroglyphics is it had this sort of strange esoteric something to it right like so what you ended up having to do and this is the, the weird thing and, and you yourself have figured this out now with you know the tetrax and the, and the sidrax and stuff like that is there's no instructions, there's no beginning or end to these instruments there's a little you, bit of poetry but you have to figure them out and part of that figuring it out is listening right and when you said before it's like that deep listening comes from trying to decipher what the hell is going on in these instruments And as, as soon as you get it, like, as soon as you get it and like, and you do all your experimentation you're like, okay, what is this? Then all of a sudden click and then it's there.
0: So what did Peter even have out back then?
1: Um, at the time, this was even before the, like, this was, this was pre, um, new rendition. So at at the time everything was brass nodes, So there was no, um, there was no bedanas at the time um so i had the coco lassa and then he released the cocoquanus basically around the same time
0: and this is not the two this is the
1: cocoquanus no the, the original one. uh like the original series that had 8 inch outs they were bigger um they had like his artwork so he'd done stenciled artwork on them sometimes you would get blue sometimes you'd get black sometimes you'd get neon like depends on what paint he had at the time so cool the coco lasso was even more because he would just find random wood and reuse whatever he had and i've had some pretty fugly ones but at the same time looking back at it i'm like geez they're pieces of art they're beautiful Mm -hmm. but yeah at the time like there was lots of other instruments that sort of Precede these ones, but they were sort of works in progress, from what I understand. That that, that sort of came up to the point of Quantus, Plum Butter, Sidrax, Tetrax. Um, even the the initial Sidrax or, or Sidrasi at the time was a different instrument than the Sidrax. Right. You know, they're bigger. They, they the playability. The nodes were on the on the bottom, so that you would touch them with your fingers as you would play the bars. So you wouldn't be patching it up. You just randomly be touching screws basically at the bottom to make the connections.
0: It's so hard to imagine.
1: It was tactile, beautiful, but so chaotic at the same time. Right. Sorry, I'm drinking tea as we, uh,
0: as we speak. I could have guessed.
1: <laughs> but what I ended up doing with a lot of them, this is what I do. I do a lot of post-processing. Um, so even back then, what I would end up doing is, is play some kind of semblance of something melodic or something, a loop of some kind, and then sample it, and then use that sample and extrapolate from that sample and use that, and then add as I went, adding in new textures, new, you know, new elements. Uh, so a lot of my tracks are, are multi-tracked and a lot of post-production.
0: So you're saying like you would record things into the Cocoa? and then sample from what you recorded into the cocoa?
1: For example, or just straight into my DAW at the time and use the clips in DAW, you know, uh, shift them around, like so that you would get these repeating patterns. Because I'm, I'm not a good player, I'm really quite twitchy. So something like a bar, it would take me two or three tries to actually get that right. Uh, to be able to get the the attack and release right. So I would record the whole thing and then I would cut it up to get those intersections. And then what I would do is, because I see my whole studio as a modular, is I would then send those back out into the cocoa. At the time when I got a PB or plum butter, uh, I would eventually send it into the plum butter and use use it to sort of filter or, you know, a tremelo effect or anything like that with the plum butter.
0: When did you get your first plum butter?
1: Uh, the first plum butter was that I was gushing over one 2013, so it would have been around that time that I got it. Uh, and that was the first one that I got was one of the original ones, so a PBV one. Um, that one, they came with bananas, so that was the first ever banana one that I had. And I'm a little... As you know, I'm a little obsessive when it comes to things matching, and I had a cocoa Qantas so that was node-based, and I had my plum butter that I had just gotten at the time, V1, that was banana-based, so then I was trying to find uh, cocoa that was banana-based, but at the time, he had, I think he had only made a couple of them, and they were really hard to come by um, until the V2s came out.
0: Yeah, now it seems like they're everywhere. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, they're, they're so much easier to find. But to try to find a B1 Cocoquanus with bananas is really quite difficult, even now still.
0: I don't think I've even ever seen it other than, like, a random Google search or something.
1: I I eventually had one. So um, the other one, big one at the time, was the Coco Deer, uh, which was basically, like, the that banana v1 cocoquanis with uh uh deer horns attached to it so there was like he would make these specific ones that were like these random variations of you know what i mean Mm -hmm. Uh, but yeah i I lusted after a plum butter for quite some time i got it and i sold it literally weeks later because i had a chance to buy a dual pb v1 and that thing, when I got it, I was so excited to get it. And then when I got it, it was so large. I couldn't believe the size of it. <laughs> the thing was probably like four feet across. And it, it was insane how large it It just didn't fit in my studio. I was like, what, what the hell am I supposed to do with this thing? But it was amazing.
0: I was going to say, I couldn't imagine the power of two. Even like one of those can be daunting if you're trying to fully utilize all of it. Well, and that's the thing, too, is,
1: is like I was literally two weeks, maybe a month, into having my first experience with the plum butter, and it had already sprung into a, a PBV2, or a PBV1 double. Um, to be honest, I pretty much used one side, uh, because I had no clue what I was doing. Um, it took me a long time to figure out the, the plum butter. It uh, took me a good year to, to really sort of figure out what I was doing. Uh, and I'm a very impatient person, unfortunately.
0: Well, the thing is, too, like, just so people can realize, like, back then, I don't think it was like it was now, where you can go and see, you know, maybe 20 different YouTube videos that at least use it, or even 20 different articles on the internet where people talk about it. Like, you were basically just playing
1: oh there was there, there was nothing there was literally nothing and and it's funny to say that 2013 was like back in the day yeah. but <laughs> it's there literally all there was was a small small community of CL users on Muff Week like we had a little subsection and some of those guys and gals are still like holding tight doing the stuff and, and you know sort of know a lot of them but without people like Bartle Booth like and I only know their handles which is I find really funny um is people like you know Hex Education Bartle Booth these kind of guys it was you know we would sort of share information they'd be like no 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 try this this is what this is for you know what I mean and there's a couple of guys on there like um is one of the big ones he basically went in and started doing it you know And he had a web page dedicated to it, like taking it apart mathematically and and figuring out the, the, uh, like the voltages of everything and how they swing and all this other kind of stuff.
0: Does that still exist?
1: Um, I think it does, to be honest. Let me just check actually.
0: Yeah. If you can find it, I'll link it in the show notes. And at the very least, I'd like to look at it myself. Uh,
1: uh pugix dot com awesome and um he did like amazing stuff um he was sort of the you know what i mean like he, he, he literally a lot of brain behind some of the information Where, you know people like myself were just like cowboys we were just like whatever you know
0: well, the one thing that i found like Sorry to cut you off, but like super interesting with the plum butter when I started patching is like I didn't understand like all the negative space C V or whatever that it has. Yeah. But then you start patching it around, you realize now everything is rhythmically related and that's kinda where all the charm from that as a drum and drama synth anyways comes from, I think.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like I think that's the thing is is like separately, you know, if you look at it as an instrument, you're like me you know what I mean? But when you start breaking it down into, like, you have basically have two of everything. So it very much reads like a, like a Buchla 100 system, um, where each of those module breakdowns has, has, a, has a dual pair, right? Mm-hmm. Or a pair. But then when you actually start looking at it as a full system, it's like looking at an easel, like in the sense that, sure, it's made up of all these little parts or these doubles of all these little parts, but put together they just complement each other so well
0: yeah it's it's such a fun instrument like I just remember I think I posted something recently and I was like I never like the sound of what I do but nothing's more fun to play with
1: well and and it's funny too because you know there's you know I don't want to say 50% of the time but I would say 30% of the time I hated what I was doing you know what I mean but the 70% of the time it was heaven it was like it was a sound that I'd never heard before and and that's the thing that I even found now with CL you know the, the, the opposition to that is, is you can really hear when somebody is using a piece of CL gear uh, especially the Coco Qantas now uh, or the Coco 2 um, but there's like when you hit that magic spot there's nothing like
0: it no. well I just remember like you telling me too when I first got it you're like you gotta try running stuff into it. Like it's not just use everything, like try using it for processing. And then I did and I was like, yeah, this is never leaving.
1: Yeah, it's weird. Like even, I don't know what, you know, magic, you know, esoteric, ruin magic that he put into that, those preamps. But those preamps have a nice little dial that just, it, it gives something a nice little crunch, a nice fuzz. I don't know what it is, but it just makes everything sound beautiful.
0: But I mean Sorry. like even on the on the plum butter like um like into the stereo filters and they yep. they sound like you've kinda heard it before, but there's just something different that's like you can't recreate anywhere else. No.
1: Like like the thing about it is is, is I have, but I think part of that is sort of telling myself that, that I can do this is, especially something like, like not so much the Plum Butter, but uh, more the cocoa Kiwanis, is that I know the sound so well now that I can sort of imitate it with other effects and instruments. Um, but that's me telling myself that buried enough, I can sort of make that sort of sound, but, but I don't truly think that there is anything that sounds like it.
0: No, yeah, no, it's not quite the same. But
1: what I find also funny is, is when when you actually look at the history of CL, and and this is one of the things I found interesting is 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 as Peter went and created these things, and what I from what I understand, reading his blog and stuff like that, like a lot of it is sort of like an art movement. It's he does these things for art's sake, and there's a lot of things that were included on like the V ones that were omitted on the V twos. And there's certain things that I miss. Um, Like I wish there was a V2 version of a Coco Lassa. I I think that to me, the pinnacle of the Coco series was a Coco Lassa.
0: But and that was the first, right? Pardon? That was the first, right? It wasn't the first. First,
1: from what I understand, I think before that there was the. I think I might be wrong because I think that might have became the Plum Butter. I think it was a Dog Slit before that. There was some other super rare versions of it Um, but I think there's only like one or two in existence kind of thing Um, but it was the predecessor to what became the coca Kwanis.
0: yeah it was like the same idea or
1: whatever yeah so you got dual 8-bits loopers like delays loopers Um, the only thing about it is, is in the original one he had like a it was called an IP knob and you have access to it with the bananas but it's more random but with the ip knob you could basically move the um the record head okay through your loop and it was really interesting for me to have that manual control where a lot of other people like sort of like a you know a randomized control
0: yeah and i think that's something i've heard a lot of people say that they wish it still had even people that maybe didn't know that that was a thing before
1: yeah, and the other, the other part too is, is and it's one of those things, I'm throwing it out there to the other CL members that uh, but for the life of me you know, because I've owned uh, three Coco <laughs> and n- too many Coco I don't even want to, it. it's kind of embarrassing
0: You should say it, just for the sake of entertainment uh,
1: I had six V1s and I th- Think I'm up to five, maybe six V2s.
0: Well, that's not too bad. No. I mean, no, granted, you started bad. in 2013, so.
1: Yeah, yeah. Let's 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 just say it's not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things that the Korgalassa does is instead of when you have your tape heads, uh, instead of when you record, it basically in the V2s, it basically replaces audio. So it records over your tape head. So as you put more sound in there, it just records off, of the, records over your old sounds. But it puts it into chunks, so you can actually like, choose when to bring it in, bring it out, and parts of your old stuff will still be in there. Uh, but it doesn't overdub. And that's what the cocolasa would do, would be sound on sound. So you could actually sound on sound overdub, which I was able to create these like sort of harmonic buildups um, which I really enjoyed, and I miss.
0: I found like Sound On Sound, too, I, I don't even think before I started making ambient music or whatever that I even really knew what that was, but now it's like I couldn't imagine doing it without it. Like I'd need to have something that does it in the studio at any time.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like some piece of gear that just does it, you know what I mean? Uh, because there's a lot of, I find with Sound On Sound, there's a lot of happy accidents, you know. There, there's you know, almost like with as much going on, all of a sudden something is is tickling your ear. All of a sudden, there's like these harmonies working. There's these chords that are happening that were unintentional.
0: Well, that's yeah. That's the other thing you can kind of make like monosynths poly too.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you sort of the way that you play it in sound and sound wouldn't be necessarily how you would play a poly synth or no. how you would sequence a synth. Like it, it there, there's something a little more organic to it. You know what I mean? Like mistakes and all. You know. Um, the other thing too is like one of the things that I missed is on the Plum Butter the V one had two controls for the dust, which is that sort of snare sound. Yeah, yeah, and. The, the way that they interacted, the two controls, to this day, I couldn't tell you exactly what their precise function was. Um, plus, it's also been a long time since I owned one. Um, but I used to use that sound so much more as a sound source. In the V2s, I wouldn't use it so much as a sound source as I would use it as a modulator. Uh, because it's a beautiful modulator.
0: Mm-hmm. I like That's one of those outputs that I usually stack
1: yeah like it like I find it by itself it just sounds too much like kind of like a snare snare hi-hat sound mm-hmm. and it just is kind of stale I find
0: yeah no I found like the. I mean I still trickle it in a lot of the times but I find you almost need to like use the ultrasounds or something just to modulate the amplitude or something in the mixer or whatever and, yep. and that'll at least give it some sort of texture.
1: Yeah, agreed a hundred percent.
0: But, uh, you also had a shinth, did you not? Had a witch? sorry? A shinth? I think that's how you say it? Yeah, the shinth? Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, I, uh, I've had a lot of shinth. Uh, again, V1s and V2s. Uh, More B-
0: or less than six? Sorry? More or less than six? um
1: way more than 6
0: <laughs> and soon yeah. to be 7.
1: Mm, yeah, soon to be 7 or more. <laughs> <laughs> um the thing about the I have a love hate for the shinth. I love the shint because it reminds me of the sidrax and 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 the tetrax. Uh, I love the bars. I love that interaction with it. Um I love that you can program it. I just cannot get my head around how Peter implemented Fish. It, it's his version of what you would imagine a, a virtual modular system would be, like a Nord modular, where you build your patches and you load them into the synth to be able to play. Um, it sort of represents the gestures, um, and yeah, to get your head around the way to program it is. Basically, how he describes it is is you're making a bouillabaisse. So you're basically a cook cooking up fish and and rice and you're putting it into a bowl and you stir it and all this kind of stuff. And that's literally how you're supposed to program this thing.
0: Um, That's so strange. What's that? (laughs) It's so strange.
1: It it really is. And it's even stranger when you actually see it in person and try to do it Um, because it's so mathematical, but at the same time, it's so esoteric. Other people, uh, there's 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 guys out there that are phenomenal uh, on it. That just you know what I mean. Like it just comes second nature to them. Um, and there's a lot of path sharing, which I like. This is what I really like about the uh, about the community too. Is is everybody is like they like sharing their ideas and sharing their information. Um, but with the shint, what I did love about it. And what I didn't so much love about the, the Sidrax and, and the Tetrax is you can't control the attack and decay of them besides just your gestures.
0: Yeah, that can be so frustrating sometimes. You just have to play to the instrument.
1: Exactly. And, and if you're not, like I find if you, if you come at it from like being able to play keyboards or being able to play guitar or something like that, there's a finesse that you end up developing with your fingers. I, like I said, I'm really twitchy. So, like, I think I got it, and then I end up, you know, twitching out a little bit, and, and it just doesn't work. Yeah. But with the shins, you could actually set attack and decay. And you could also make it true stereo instead of bouncing between left and right stereo field. Um, so, I ended up being able to make these sort of dirty Sidrax sounds. were beautiful they were just beautiful digital gross versions of sine waves that i could have these super like i was getting so many overlapping notes that it would end up distorting into this beautiful fuzz and it's incredible
0: well i hope you get one again soon i like i definitely want to hear more of that thing they're wonderful because they're they're small they're portable
1: you put headphones into them and just play around with them they're, they're a wonderful little instrument.
0: Is there anything that Peter hasn't made that you'd love to see his take on? Well,
1: um, this is kind of a cheat because I've owned one and I know that it's in production. Uh, but the Stubber is the one that I'm sort of looking forward to. Um, basically, it's his version of a, of, a, of a filter, of a standalone filter. Um, that's the one I, I think that I'm really looking forward
0: to. But I mean like is there something that doesn't exist? Like is there like something you'd love to see him do something with?
1: Um, I would like I think for me what I just mentioned there because because he's worked like he's released Euro modules now and stuff like that, there are sort of variations of all these things that you could sort of build your own. Right. Um, but I'd love to see like an expanded version of something like the Citrax uh, with at least attack and decay. You know what I mean? If it had an attack and decay, that uh, you know would be the ultimate instrument for for me.
0: Yeah, so not like the Quatrax where you just get 20 more bars, but you still have to have perfect control.
1: Exactly. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, I wouldn't mind seeing... Like, okay, so Dream Machine would be a Coco Lassa V2, Bananas, um, and have it expanded. So in other words, what I would see, because the Coco Lassa, what, okay, quick little thing here is, is the Coco Quantus, the thing that makes it interesting is the Quantusi. The Quantusi is the, little, the LFOs that sort of talk to each other in the middle of the Coco Lassa, or the uh, Coco Quanta. In the Kokolasa, it actually had a sidrax, or a, sorry, sidrasi, as its main LFO sources. So basically, you had a, a sidrasi that you could play with CV, controlling all the functions of the Kokolasa.
0: How did you control pitch on that? Was it like bars still, or? Uh, no, it had CV-ins. So there was no, like, slider or knobs? Or- no,
1: no. But I know that Meng Ki made, uh, who is a, a creator out of uh, China, and he made a variation where he had bars available. So he it, he did it in plastic and metal. It was really actually cool looking. I don't know how many there are out there. Um, but it was basically a cocolasa, but with bar control. Right. But... Most of the Cocoa Lasses didn't have... They would have to get modded, but a lot of guys would mod them. All of mine were modded to have CV inputs for all the LFO VCOs, basically.
0: And then, like, so whatever voltage came in determined whether or not it was an LFO or if it was in audio range?
1: Yeah, you could... There were switches, so you could switch it, switch it, just like the... Like how the uh,
0: Cocoa is now? Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool, yeah, yeah.
1: But instead of it being, like, uh, uh a a chaos control where it's like your pulse wave or your castle basically um and the chaotic reaction between the two of them where you can't get pure source out with the coco lassa you could actually get pure source out so you could get sine waves you could get triangle waves you could get like it was just more controllable
0: yeah that's sick yeah Okay, we're getting near the end here, but I was just wondering if you wanted to maybe talk about your most recent album a little bit as well. I'm not gonna try and pronounce it. Uh,
1: it's it's a Danish word. It's called Yemvi. Uh, Yemvi is basically the translation is homesickness. Um, and not that, like I've I've told I've talked about this in interviews before, and basically what it is is. Uh, long story short, I suffer from um, long-term memory loss. And I basically can only remember 20 years back. Uh, anything else beyond that is is nothing. There's just nothing there. I don't remember my childhood or anything like that. But for some reason, I still get these nostalgic feelings when I hear something or see something or smell something or experience something. But I don't know where that source of Uh, homesickness comes from. I don't know where that reaction comes from. So I constantly have this this sort of, um, like, I I guess the only way, a heaviness in my heart, longing for something or missing something, but I don't know what it is because I have no memory of it. Um, And that was what the album deals with, is that idea of Yimby, which is, yeah, homesickness.
0: Yeah, the album's beautiful, Joe. I love it.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: And I think you used uh, Coco Kiwanis on that album, too? Yep,
1: yeah, 100%. Every single track has Coco Kiwanis on it.
0: It was like, I found it, like, slightly different sound for you, but you could still hear you in it, and it was nice to, like, hear a little bit of an evolution, too. I think, um, like, I... I think the
1: purest CL warmest sort of CL album that I released was uh, my first full length, which was uh, uh, Summerhouse or Summerhouse. Um, I think that's the one where it was like the most raw CL stuff. Um, the second album I did um, was a little darker. I guess would be a good way to do it. Some of the more aggressive tracks were in there, and I found that. The newest one, Yembe, was a little more mature. Um, and it might actually be, the verdict's out, but it might be the last album for Fern Lodge. Uh-oh. Uh, yeah. I, I'm not 100% sure if I want to give up that direction yet, uh, but I've been exploring new, new and different sounds that... I don't know would lend themselves to the audience that I've built up in Fern Lawn, Uh, but I'm not sure yet. I I also have to trust my audience and and the fact that that artists change and and people will still listen.
0: You better make sure the other band members don't hear this podcast.
1: Exactly. You know what I mean. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Maybe that's the thing. Maybe I got to change now because the other two guys left. (laughs) You know.
0: well i'll uh, i'll definitely link to your albums in the show notes here and it was a pleasure chatting to you joe
1: thank you very much for the interview appreciate it
0: and uh, i'm sure we'll do this again whether or not we hit record excellent good night buddy good night